This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the administration's effort to improve healthcare price transparency. With me to discuss the topic is Professor Michael Chernu, Leonard Schaefer Professor of Healthcare Policy and the Director of the Healthcare Markets and Regulation Lab in the Department of Health Policy at Harvard's Medical School. Uh, Mike, welcome to the program. Thank you, David. Um, I'm glad to be uh, included. Professor Chernu's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, in two Trump administration executive orders dated October 12-17 and this past June 24th, the White House directed federal agencies to adopt rules that would increase the transparency of health care prices and quality. As a result, beginning this past January, hospitals were required to post current standard charges and encouraged to publicly post related quality information. In the current proposed rule for 2020, the administration, specifically CMS, stated intends to require all non-federal hospitals to post their gross and pair-specific negotiated charges or actual prices for at least 300 common shoppable services or those that can be scheduled in advance. The White House believes these efforts will enable consumers to make more informed decisions, help protect patients from surprise medical bills, an issue that Congress will wrestle with all this year and make the healthcare market more competitive, innovative, and of higher value. Price transparency was discussed at length in a December 2018 administration report titled Reforming America's Healthcare System Through Choice and Competition. With me again to discuss the administration's healthcare price uh, transparency policy is Harvard's Professor Michael Chernu. So before we get into the research evidence on price transparency, uh, Michael, I would like to ask you a question. Would we be talking about uh, price transparency or be giving it this profile if we had antitrust enforcement over the last several decades? Oh, I think we would. Um, there is a, a lot of issues related to competition generally, but the issue with price transparency and the reason why we talk about it is that um, even when you have markets that are perfectly um, uh, not perfectly competitive. Even when you have markets where you're not worried about monopolies or other problems like that, where there's a lot of competitors, um, consumers generally don't shop. Um, and so the concern has been how we go to improve shopping, even if we have enough providers that patients can uh, choose between. In monopoly markets, of course, price transparency doesn't matter because where are you going to go? But the challenge in Broadly, in the uh, economic paradigm, there's a very old paradigm called structure conduct performance, where structure is to say the number of competitors, how many hospitals, and conduct is how the market works given that, and then performance is sort of the outcomes. And the challenge is, particularly in healthcare because of insurance, information problems, even if you have a lot of providers, you don't get a lot of shopping. So antitrust could help have a lot of help you have a lot of providers maintain that level of structural competitiveness, but it doesn't necessarily help the conduct of the market. And I think a lot of what's going on in this price 
transparency discussion is attempts by people to make the market function more competitively when the structure of competition is even possible. The issue of antitrust is more about what happens in situations when even if you had perfect transparency, people could have shopped because there aren't enough competitors to make the market competitive. Okay, thank you. Let's let's now let's. I did want to ask that question up front. Let's go to the evidence. Uh, you've published several research articles on this topic, uh, in among other journals, uh, Health Affairs, Inquiry, uh, New England Journal, and JAMA. Um, the one I thought, which was a, a summary piece, was the April uh, 2018 New England Journal uh, publication that. Uh, coincidentally, Austin Fract recently uh, summarized. Uh, but you provide an overview of the quote-unquote promise and reality of price transparency in that publication. Your essay, uh, this again, the April 2018 Nijim essay, concludes, price transparency has not achieved the promises of facilitating price shopping and decreasing spending. What evidence have you found uh, that led you to uh, reach this or draw this conclusion? So... There's a lot of discussion around price transparency, and a lot of people define it somewhat differently. So most of the work that we were talking about has a very specific interpretation of what we mean by price transparency. It's a very specific aspect of price transparency, and that is the basic premise that you want consumers to have tools that will enable them to compare the prices from different providers and thereby shop for care, going to providers that have lower prices and higher uh, quality. The work that we did uh, was evaluations of different employers that adopted those various types of tools. And we found, and I think there's broader evidence uh, after the work that we did that's sort of supportive of this, that by and large, those tools don't increase the amount of shopping as much as many pro-market advocates would think. You should know going into this that I consider myself a relatively pro-market economist. Uh, I believe in markets. I believe in competition. I believe that information helps markets work. Um, but for a variety of reasons in the healthcare space, even when tools were available, you didn't see consumers use them, uh, in part because they listened to their doctor, in part because they might not have been aware of the tools. In some cases, the information that was available in the tools weren't specific to the individual patient. So, for example, it is very complicated to know the price that you will have to pay if you get your MRI at a specific facility, even if you know the overall price. In order to know what you have to pay, you also need to know things like where you are relative to your deductible. Mm -hmm. um, so two people from the same company getting care at the same facility um, where the overall price that the facility gets is the same amount may have to pay different amounts out of pocket. Um, it's more complicated if you have people from different insurers um, or different benefit designs um, in various ways. So the data that we had was from a tool that was supposed to be as good as possible 
it telling an individual person what they would have to pay it to different places, but it is still very hard to make that information exactly accurate. And even if the information is accurate, many people want to go where they're referred to by their physician. So they don't, if your physician says, go get your MRI at this particular facility, many people go and get their MRI at that specific facility. And they don't know to shop, they don't want to shop, they're worried about the quality, the quality measures are often um, not particularly uh, well trusted, that's not a fault of the quality measurement, it just turns out it's very hard to measure quality. And so uh, what the evidence that we uh, report on uh, suggests is that uh, the basic premise that if information was available, people would be able to shop, uh, was, was not the case because of a whole range of the institutional problems, including those that I just mentioned, but there's also a slew of others um, related to idiosyncrasies in the, um, in the healthcare sector. Okay, thank you. You, you uh, did mention, of course, uh, the difficulty in specifically calculating uh, the out-of-pocket costs Many, many um, patients default to their physician's advice. Information can be indecipherable. Uh, you did find, I thought this was interesting, the evidence showed that there's no correlation of tool usage with uh, persons with high deductible plans, meaning if you have a high deductible plan, you likely would be more motivated to look for a lower price. That didn't seem to uh, prove out in the evidence. And that patients cannot, in instances, not be sensitive to price because if they're going to be high utilizers, they're going to hit their deductible one way or another, or it's inevitable. So uh, price point is not that uh, uh, important or relevant. Um, right. Let, let me ask you about... Uh, I, should be, I should be interviewing you. Go on. <laughs> you, you've got a spot. You're, you're spot on. Well, I was just trying to complete the picture here. Um, yeah, no, that, that's right. And I'll just say while you're completing the picture, I mean, I didn't go through all the things. There's another problem, which is... Um, people think, well, I'm going to go figure out the price of an MRI uh, or the CT scan. It turns out there's 50 different types of CT scans that differ based on a number of sort of clinical things, and there's a bunch of different MRI services. And oftentimes, you might be able to figure out what the facility fee is, but you know what? You also need to know what the physician fee is. So the way in which the healthcare system is set up institutionally makes it exceptionally challenging to shop even if actually all the information is there. We've had, just to give you an example, um, uh, we tried to change the benefit design here at Harvard in a way that would hold constant the price of a primary care visit so that we thought that was a good thing. Um, that turned, You would think that would be an easy thing to do. It turned out the problem was that although we kept the copay for the primary care visit the same, so in some literal sense we were successful, the price of an office did not change, we had done other changes to the benefit design in which people had to pay for lab tests. And so someone going to a facility and paying the same amount for their physician visit, they might think it's the same, but in fact, differences in the lab test, which many people associate with the office visit, 
were actually there, and it was much harder to shop because when you go to use any healthcare service, most of the time in a billing sense, you, you're using way more than one healthcare service. Even if you're using one single service, you're awfully paying that separately because there's a facility fee and a professional fee. In many cases, for a surgery, there'll be a fee for the facility, there'll be a fee for the surgeon, there'll be a fee for the anesthesiologist, there might be a fee for the blood, which I realize shouldn't be said on podcasts. But anyway, the point is... Um, the, the things on your bill are so complicated that what people want to shop for is a, if I get this service done at this place, what will it cost me out of pocket? And the information they're often provided is not that for a whole range of complicated and, frankly, frustrating, um, mind-numbingly frustrating reasons. Okay. Okay. Let's, I do want to ask about the response to date uh, from the proposed rule. But uh, you also note, and referencing uh, this particular 18 publication, that um, you, the research points to alternative solutions, largely based on changing provider or physician behavior. So there's a way to get at this, not from the consumer or the patient, but from change behavior on the provider's part. What are those uh, variables that a provider physician can exploit? Well, to give you an example, um, and one of the things that I think most organizations are doing now is um, where where the providers refer you to. So there's certain, I, again, as I mentioned, I'm reasonably pro-market person, um, and I do think there's, as we know, a lot of this has been motivated because there's wide, wide price variation even within markets. And um, the question then becomes, who are the, stakeholders that should be sort of primarily driving, for example, as I mentioned earlier, increased shopping. And um, the, uh, the general view, I think, is in a lot of cases, you would be better off having the physicians change their referral patterns than having uh, consumers uh, search some website. And so, for example, you see in various types of payment reform models um, results that suggest that some of the savings occurs when organizations that are at risk for high spending um, change their change their referral patterns in, in a whole range of different ways. So um, that type of thing, informing the, the, the work is still very nascent, but the basic idea would be uh, let physicians know where they might save money through their referral patterns. And in many new payment models, the physicians actually get to share some of the savings in a simple consumer shopping model, the savings are captured by the consumer, which, again, I'm in favor of broadly, except um, uh, consumers are often not particularly well-suited to do that. And so models where you you inform and encourage the medical community to do a better job of um, referring um, patients and shopping themselves um, actually might end up being uh, more impactful than relying on consumer and consumer shopping to fundamentally solve these problems. Again, I do think there's a role for consumers, but I think, for example, the paper you referenced earlier that we looked at uh, suggested that it's much more limited than a very simple pro-shopping narrative would suggest. Okay. Thank you. You do also mention uh, reference pricing, and yeah. uh, use of rewards programs or rebates as ways uh, the providers can get to the same end here. 
I, um, well, well, reference pricing, I'm sorry to interrupt, David. Sure, so reference pricing tends to be one of the examples of how you would actually engage consumers better. So back to the earlier point, consumers often don't need to shop because they're going to hit their out-of-pocket max and it doesn't make a difference where they go because even though the prices may be very different in two different facilities, the out-of-pocket price of the consumer is basically the same because of the aspect of their insurance. Mm -hmm. So reference pricing, tiered networking, those types of things, even the rewards programs um, that we've done some work on where patients are effectively paid given rewards or bonuses if they go to certain facilities, those types of programs, they try and um, engage the consumer in ways to get around the inherent um, dampening effect of many current insurance schemes. When we were talking before about the role of providers, that's changed. All the reference pricing and the um, rewards programs, those are consumer-oriented. All the payment reform things and some of the information programs directed at physicians, those are all um, oriented towards the referring physician, not the patient being mm -hmm. referred. Mm -hmm. And just to be clear on reference pricing, the uh, price is uh, stated, meaning the, the, the payer will only cover uh, that amount and any amount above or beyond that is out of pocket to the uh, patient. Let me go to, so the, this um, uh, latest administration effort that I noted in the introduction, where beginning next year, as proposed, uh, hospitals or non-federal hospitals uh, have to post pair-specific negotiated charges or actual prices for the 300 common chapel services, was not uh, met with uh, great enthusiasm by uh, the hospital community uh, almost within hours of the, uh, this proposed rule being uh, dropped, uh, the American Hospital Association uh, complained or said this was the proposal was a bad idea. There, there is, there does seem to be a fair amount of logic to unintended negative consequences here. So I do want to ask you about those. For examples, um, if prices are transparent, what argument? One argument is hospitals uh, might be less willing to make uh, selective price concessions for fear of having to extend those price concessions to all payers. And there's a list of these. What's your general assessment of uh, how uh, this might turn out uh, to produce some negative market effects? Yeah. So um, in most of these areas, I think right now there's more theory than evidence. So I don't want to uh, state too boldly what I think will happen in those cases. Uh, you summarized better than I could what the theoretical concern is, is that once you make prices uh, transparent in any negotiation, you actually change the dynamic of that negotiation. And there's uh, some evidence from other industries that, in fact, doing so may cause paradoxically an increase in prices as opposed to a decrease in prices as different people are less willing to offer um, lower prices um, because everybody else will know that they offered lower prices and then they'll have to extend those lower prices to everybody. And in doing so, uh, it, it's much less possible for them to do that. So I think there's, that's a theoretical concern. There's some other uh, reasons I think I could give as to why um, it might be valuable independent of the um, impact of negotiations. For example, there could be uh, when the journalists get hold of what the actual prices are, that may uh, create some uh, disciplinary or uh, downward pressure on prices is no one wants to be published in the newspaper as charging 
substantially higher prices than other people around, sort of a shaming effect, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no idea the extent to which that would go on. Again, a lot of these activities are very new. I think um, where, I, where I'm reasonably confident, although um, uh, reasonably is a lower bar than totally, but nevertheless, is if your model of action is one in which you think consumers will look at these prices, um, shop on their own, and that will have an effect of controlling overall market price inflation through a big shift in demand, I think that is probably not realistic without different insurance packages and a whole bunch of other things going on because of the nature of the way in which consumers shop and the fact that the prices being posted are actually not the prices that patients will have to pay. It doesn't tell them where they are in the deductible. It doesn't tell them where they are relative to their out-of-pocket max. It doesn't tell them all the different services they're actually going to need. So there might be certain areas where it would work. I do think there may be some targeted places that are sufficiently commoditized and easy to understand where you might see that work well. And I think the administration tried to get at some of those by you know, having situations where you're looking in advance for uh, a particular service that it might be reasonable to expect that people would be able to shop for those services and they understand them and know what they are and the services are simple enough for shopping. But um, my general view is those things are um, relatively infrequent, um, at least not frequent enough to really make a dramatic dent in the uh, really intolerable price problem that we're facing in this country. So I think we're going to need much bolder action than uh, simply uh, posting prices and calling it a day. Um, so that's sort of my first take on some of those things. The uh, And then when you add into that the potential, as you alluded to, that there may be some unintended deleterious consequences uh, makes me all told reasonably ambivalent about um, where we go in the uh, sort of overall scheme of this sort of make them post prices. Plus, there's just the administrative cost of getting them all posted and doing all those types of things. I do think that if we decide uh, to offer uh, or put people in certain types of health plans, you mentioned reference pricing, for example, where people might actually face a large out-of-pocket cost if they go to an expensive place, I do think it's morally imperative that they be able to differentiate the expensive from the less expensive places. Um, it's not completely clear to, we, to me that we need total transparency in order to do that. You really just might need to uh, be able to provide much simpler information about, you know, this is an expensive place. They, you might not need to know down to the penny or nickel, you know, whatever the price actually is. But again, we're early on in some of these initiatives and so I think we have to learn a lot more about what their impact is and how consumers are using the information that is available and how the market is responding overall to how the information is available. You know, relative to your comment about simpler explanation, one uh, proposed idea is either just print the average price in the market for X shoppable service or post that along with, say, a high and low price. And this way, no particular provider is in a sense outed. Before we go, I'll maybe just throw in one quick last question. I will say I, your, my general sense from your comments is uh, this has to be tried and that uh, price opaqueness is, is indefensible. But since you're in Massachusetts, I'm sure the state has wrestled with this. What learning, uh, relevant learning from the state of Massachusetts can you offer? 
Yeah, I, I wish I had a really good answer for that question. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm luckily we're running out of time, and sure. so I'm just going to say I don't have enough time to talk about it in great detail. But really, realize that's a cop out. Um, what I would say actually is we have serious um, fiscal problems in making our healthcare system sustainable. And there's a lot of things that have to happen. I'm somewhat ambivalent about whether price transparency is a good idea um, because of the potential. You have to weigh the potential beneficial and the potential deleterious consequences. But I do think what would be true in Massachusetts and a whole series of other states is um, even if you're the most ardent supporter of price transparency, you can't expect that that should distract us from dealing with all of the other issues. Many of the issues, surprise billing would be an example. Mm -hmm. um, there's no way transparency is going to solve the surprise billing problem because a lot of the surprise billing problem is in situations where you simply don't have a choice. You're in the hospital, you thought it was in network, and even if you, you, know, you, you had a, a trauma in various ways. And so you're just not in a situation where you're really going to be able to shop. To, um, right. to shop. And so the, you know, we could have a debate. I think we've had a discussion now, and I think the country will learn more over time um, about the relative balance between the positive and negative effects of, say, posting prices, which in and of itself remains to be seen. But more importantly than that is in the meantime, while we have that discussion, we can't be um, – we can't be distracted from doing a whole series of other things that involve getting some of the most egregious abuses of pricing um, addressed in the country. And I think the biggest danger of price transparency isn't the potential deleterious consequences, although I'm concerned about them. The biggest danger, in my view, from price transparency is they're going to distract from a whole bunch of other potential solutions um, to, to really very real problems. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, with that, Michael, I'll let you go. I do appreciate this. A discussion very helpful, and we'll see how this uh, plays out in the final rule in November. I may be back in touch, so thank you again. Thank you, and it's always nice to listen to your podcast and speak with you, so I appreciate it. Appreciate it. it. Thanks again, Michael. Take care. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.